Excuse me. Could I ask you about these? What about them? What are they for? Well, like blue hank in your left back pocket means you want a blowjob. Right pocket means you give one. The green one left side says you're a hustler, right side you're a buyer. The yellow one left side means you give golden shower, right side you receive. The red one means you see anything you want? Uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go home and think about it. I'm Madeline, and I'm a writer and a cultural critic. I'm Dave. I'm a comedian and proud SAG-AFTRA actor. Welcome to Genre Reveal Party, where we talk about TV and movies through the lens of genre, its definition, its limits, and what we can learn by exploding them. Each episode, one of us chooses a TV show or movie to discuss with spoilers, because you don't need to have watched The Thing to enjoy the podcast, and we are in Season 1, Family Matters. And we're wrapping it up, too. Um, this yeah. is our 11th episode. And um, this week, we have a special guest, uh, Max Fox, who is one of the founding members of Pinko Magazine. Max is a writer, translator, and editor whose work broadly deals with queer communist theory. And he's also a dear friend and collaborator of mine. He's responsible for the posthumous publication of our friend Chris Chitty's book, Sexual Hegemony. Um which Max edited and published with Duke University Press. And just this year, he's written two fantastic essays on child liberation that I want to mention um, up front. First is a piece in Parapraxis magazine entitled The Traffic of Children, and more recently in Lux magazine, an essay called Free the Children. And um, not to be too self-promotional, but next year, our co-authored book Fag Hag will be coming out with Rosa Press. Um, oh, so, shit. This yeah. is the first time I'm hearing about this. Congrats. That's amazing. <laughs> so, yeah. Welcome to the podcast, Max. Thanks for um, having me. Hi. Yeah. Thanks for coming on. Okay. Did Max choose this movie? Was this your choice? I was Max? just going to say, I kind of suggested, suggested it. it. And it was perfect. It I was, I was I, Yeah, I was kind of struggling to think of uh, appropriate genre, um, you know, exploration movie but you tried to force us to watch antichrist which <laughs> would have been okay but like <laughs> had to had to mentally gear up yeah no it. i mean I, I also that one i hadn't i haven't seen for a long time i remember there was like a couple of years when i was like really obsessed with a very particular interpretation of what was happening in that and i like kept seeing confirmation of this theory in subsequent like auteur films and i was like oh wow maybe this is going to be the moment when i deliver my like you know unified theory of what well you know, well now i now we got into a whole other episode about antichrist sometime cinemas gender religion world birth and ending um you know, philosophy. But yeah, I think this is much better. This is much more more, more to play with. You know what I mean? Totally. So yeah, I invited Max on this week to talk about the 1980 William Friedkin film Cruising, starring Al Pacino. And I've been enjoying this euphemism. Max and I have been referring to this film in our text as a quote, or text messages as a quote, rich text, (laughs) which I think really does capture um, quite a lot. Um, so the plot, I'm just going to go over pretty quickly. It's, it's actually pretty simple. There's a serial killer in the West Village 
and Al Pacino, a cop, is assigned to go undercover. He dives into the world of leather bars and kink, and as the investigation goes on, we wonder a few things. Um, is he gay? Is he homophobic? Is he homicidal? Um, is he a sociopath? Right? Um, and none of these really, spoiler, get totally resolved by the end. In fact, the end kind of stirs up more questions with it. Um, and I was thinking about this and yes, the plot is very simple and probably most of what I'm going to want to talk about today is the historical context of the film. Um, and, um, just kind of making sense of it. Um, so it came out in 1980 in February, 1980. That's more than a year before the CDC officially recognized, what would later be known as AIDS, then called GRID, gay-related immune deficiency. Um, you know, there was, it's not as if that came out of nowhere, right? But this was this kind of moment of ambiguity, and there were things like junky pneumonia and kind of these conspiracies whirling around, and specifically around, you know, the neighborhoods that um, the film is set in. Um, so we can get into that. That's very conspiratorial territory, especially when we're thinking about like how much did the filmmakers really know what they were tapping into. Um, but this was a huge controversy, this film, um, before it even went into production. Um, it was adapted from a 1970 novel by um, Gerald Walker which was based on act an actual series of murders um, in that time. Um, but there were protests throughout the filming of this movie, and gay rights activists um, were claiming that, you know, the film's focus on a gay serial killer was discriminatory. Um, it's very familiar um, territory. We've talked about, you know, 12 years later in the filming of Basic Instinct, the same stuff was coming up. Um, why is it that the only kind of queer representation we're getting in mainstream cinema is like homicidal, sociopathic, you know, deeply disturbed figures, right? Um, so a column was written by Arthur Bell in The Village Voice in the summer of 79, and he actually called for acts of sabotage to the film. So protesters started disrupting the production they were using mirrors to mess with the lighting. They were using whistles and air horns to mess with the sound. And a lot of the sound um, was put in post-production. And it um, it's just very troubled, like at the, at the level of form <laughs> and production. Um, so that's one thing I wanted to kind of talk about. Um, and then in, in terms of our like genealogy that we're sort of building in this first season. This is an interesting starting point for us with the erotic thriller. Um, so I know when we did our Michael Douglas episode, I mentioned that uh, American Gigolo, which came out um, actually one week before this movie on February 8th, 1980, is often referred to as a kind of starting point of that genre. Um, and Richard Gere was actually the first choice for the lead in Cruising. Um, and that was while John Travolta was being approached for that part in American Gigolo. And um, I'm just going to add some gossip. So there was supposedly a lot of speculation about John Travolta's sexuality at that time. 
And so... And never after, just Never at that after, time. because Scientology <laughs> and Kelly Preston. Um, but that's why he declined, was basically because it was too gay to do American Gigolo. So obviously cruising was um, way too gay. <laughs> um, oh, and then wow. another film that I wanted to mention alongside this came out a couple months later, but it seems very much of this moment, which was Brian De Palma's Dress to Kill, um, which is about a... And the, at the time, a transvestite serial killer was like how it was termed. It might, you know, be more about transness and these type of things. It's kind of confused about really what it's saying about gender. But at any rate, it's a serial killer plot following a sex worker. Um, the serial killer turns out to be her therapist, Michael Caine. Um, and it's kind of like Brian De Palma's attempt to make Psycho. Because he was in this moment where he was basically unable to do anything but like try to remake Hitchcock movies, and so that was his that was his psycho. And then the last thing I wanted to say, just to set up context, is that this is this movie is like notorious for the struggles it had with the MPAA. So they tried to get um, an R rating supposedly fifty times, um, which is incredibly expensive. Um, and um, it maybe cost something like fifty or sixty thousand dollars to just go through those submission processes with the MPA. Um, they wanted to give it an X rating, and so yeah, notoriously there are these forty minutes of graphic sex scenes that were taken out um, of the film, mostly taking place in the leather bar. And in 2013, James Franco and Travis Matthews made a, quote, docu-film called Interior Leather Bar, which was attempting to reimagine the deleted footage. And I went down a torturous path and actually watched it yesterday, so I can speak to, <laughs> speak to that. Um, so those are, those are just some things that I wanted to, to mention up front that we can get back to. But um, the kind of bigger arc of this film is that, like, it absolutely bombed critically when it came out. It was doomed from the start because of these protests. It recovered at the box office. People were curious enough about it. Um, it's generally thought to be an embarrassment for both Pacino and Friedkin. And over the last decade or so, there's been a return to the film that I really wanted to talk to Max about because I'm I'm curious about like the this return to this film and like what's being seen now about it that couldn't have been seen then or wasn't wasn't being picked up on. Um, is this just like an ahistorical revisionist reading of the film, or is there some somehow like? something else going on is it is it nostalgic for this moment you know sort of pre-aids like how do we think about um like yeah the historical character of it and also this um renewed interest in the new kinds of readings that have have come out of it more recently um because i think when, even when i saw this and the weirdly i know i mentioned this before but like i watched all of al pacino's films when i was in um, middle school and high school. I actually watched this for the first time when I was 14, which is really wow. uh, sketchy <laughs> slash neglectful childhood <laughs> experience. But um, at that time, this movie was just, it meant bomb, right? It got nominated for like some Razzie awards. It just, there, 
it was flatly understood as just a bad movie, right? Um, so I don't really know when exactly since then or how to characterize this like renewed interest in it, um, if it's super niche or what, but I definitely think um, it's worth rewatching and kind of rethinking in a new context. So those were some of the kind of bigger questions I wanted to hang over the conversation, but that's all. I love it. Let's chat. Max, I really want to know, like, what's your story with this movie? When's the first time you saw it? And how did you hear about it? And what was your first impression? You know, I don't, I don't remember when I saw it exactly. Um, I, uh, I'm going to claim that I saw it screened in New York, maybe at film forum. Um, which means when I was in my twenties. Um, and I don't think I had received any of the, like, this is a notorious, um, like stinker or whatever, uh, Mm -hmm. nor, nor had I really heard a lot about the, um, the protests against it though. Um, I was mentioning like, you know, since, since then I've like started coming into, um, sort of closer contact with a lot of like, um, the sort of community scenes and newsletters and publications and stuff that were being, um, created in the, in the village in, in New York at the time. And like, it's a, you know, a commonplace reference that like, you know, they're doing the, they're doing the protests down on, um, whatever the meatpacking district or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I sort of, okay, you know what <laughs> I'm, I may have. So I, so around the same time I'm, I was, um, one of my, one of my gigs was, I was like, um, uh, ghostwriting, uh, movie reviews for someone who would publish them on like a blog. Oh, right. um, and this was one of the, it was very confusing. I see that physical look on your face. It didn't make any sense for anybody. <laughs> uh, but I, I, so I was, I think it's possible that I first, uh, watched the Franco movie for, to, to make, to write this review. Whoa. Um, and I remember thinking, I mean, that one's obviously like its own, uh, rich text in its own way. <laughs> um, I remember like, trying to make some kind of, um, claim on behalf of this weird person I was in his name I was writing that like it was a somewhat substantive exploration of Franco's like relation to his own sort of celebrity as hinging on the sort of social fact of his beauty and how he mm. had to like triangulate that as a straight man and in retrospect as like a certain type of predator I suppose was also so like threaded through that. Yeah. Um, but, uh, uh, so let's say for the purposes of this conversation that I saw this, <laughs> I saw the sort of the weird remake first, and mm-hmm. then I saw the original mm. and then I discovered that like, it was this kind of controversial thing. Um, so yeah, so I, I feel like somehow I, 
was able to have a fairly like innocent or naive response to it. And I was just like, at a very basic level, I find it incredibly like moving that they have these scenes in the mine shaft, which for me as a, a man who has some sort of sort of like my politics place some sort of weight on that as an institution mm-hmm. um, and to, and I, you know, I've only seen it in kind of like Xeroxed photos or, or like washed out, um, you know, ephemera or whatever to see it kind of live and like listening in sweat in a way that you can like really imagine yourself being inside of this really just like that alone is kind of worth the um the like otherwise like kind of goofy and incoherent like murder plot that's happened that's like tacked on around it um so I think like if there's a if there's like a rediscovery or there's like a reassessment in the positive sense as um, as you're, you're saying there's sort of only been in the past couple like decade or so um, I I guess I haven't been following like the exact contours of the, of the the discourse around that but I would imagine it's like it take it's taking a lot of um, like um, uh, sort of uh, sustenance from that sort of like the you know the, the beating heart of the movie is simply the fact that they like went into the mine shaft or wherever got all the leather dudes to like just set up in front of the camera and yeah preserve that thing which is like very i don't know like a historically like really interesting and precious document you know yeah yeah no, I was I was just talking to a friend, um, my friend Phil, who I know you've met, um, mm-hmm. who is like a queer historian, and, and he was talking about like he could he could kind of witness these different phases of reception that I was talking about, but really cut through and said, you know, at this point, I'm just I look at this as like an artifact. I'm nostalgic in some way for this time that I never could have experienced as a gay man, you know, um, and that that's really the power of this film, but that's like very much a generational reading, right? Like we can appreciate how at the time this felt like pure exploitation, like this film crew is coming into our neighborhood and like, you know, taking from us um, this subculture that, that is ours and that we want to preserve and protect. And um, there's something very violating about, I think the experience of the filming. Right. And it's literally, it's literally the sort of set dressing for a murder mystery that is basically reproducing all the violent tropes that like create the need to have this kind of like oppositional subculture in the first place. Right. But like, you know, when when Pacino tries to engage somewhat directly with the, the like actual objects, like there's a scene where he like goes into the um uh I guess the like leather store and he like asks right. what the um what the the tips mean. The hanky code. Hanky. Stuff. Yeah, and so they do the sort mm-hmm. of hanky code recital. Um and he's like uh, thanks. I need to. I, th- I think I need to go home and lie down or whatever. Right? Like punchline. <laughs> like he's he's. Which is wild because do you think so? I was looking up. It, weirdly, the hanky code 
ha- I, I mean, I'm a cis straight guy, and and through watching, literally, it was Trixie Motel and the most recent um, RuPaul's Drag Race All Stars season. Uh-huh. I the hanky code has this is the third instance of the hanky code coming up in my viewing in the last like week. Weird. And so ne- so I've been like reading all about it <laughs> and and tell me if I'm wrong but the reading I did is that red is fisting like depending depending on where you wear it it's fister or fisty and do you think because the way the joke is set up in that scene the 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 clerk is like oh yeah you know this is for if you give head this is to receive head this is for you know yellows golden showers and then red is is before he gets to say like fisting oh. pacino is like oh yeah i'm i'm good i'm good is is the <laughs> idea there that the fact that it's red and maybe i don't know yellow is piss so maybe red is blood uh, and pacino's like i don't even want to know do you, or or am i reading too much into it do you think Uh, that's funny. Wait, I'm sorry. Are you are you saying that like the joke relies on the audience knowing that or expecting? Yeah, it? that's what I, that's what I'm wondering. Or piecing wow. together the logic. Well, if yellow right. is urine, then I don't blood. know. I don't. Know. I mean, that's that's a pretty. I mean, if the viewing uh, public of the United States in 1980 had that available to them, I guess yeah, maybe the moral. Or if it was like an Easter egg off. joke for the community yeah. or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's I a good don't point. know. Right. Yeah. Now, can I ask, Dave? Had you had you heard before this week? Before it showed up a bunch uh, in your on your screens this week, had you heard about the hanky code? I had not heard about the hanky code what? at all. Oh, and wow. as someone who loves a personality test, I was trying to find <laughs> some way. I was like, "Do I have? A, is there a color? Could I? Could I be? You know, not to appropriate, but I was like, what hanky code would I be?' And there was, I just didn't. You know, nothing. Yeah, I I didn't. I you know. It's it's well designed to to gatekeep straight dudes. <laughs> sure, sure. Well, yeah. I wanted. I was really curious, Dave. What what were you going to think of this movie? Um, tell us, tell us your thoughts. Like, yeah. Well, I'm worried about your interpretation. Well, yeah. I so so first immediate response is I loved it. Mm-hmm. Second response is obviously I see all of the you know, problematic aspects of it. So I'm worried about being like, I loved it, you know? <laughs> um, but, but I just thought, I thought it was very beautiful. Mm-hmm. I thought that I thought the soundtrack was fucking incredible. Like so good, you know, um, the, the connection between like punk and funk that it makes just in like these kind of like distorted trebly sounds like went really well together mm-hmm. um i don't have many notes i'm mostly just driven by like curiosity here and like mm-hmm. excitement for you know it, it's the kind of ambiguity that i do find exciting is in this movie um and that ending fucked me up where it's like is al pacino the killer uh, you know, I uh, was I I loved that. Um, I I do think that there are not you know in terms of the thing you all were talking about it with the like nostalgia thing mm-hmm. and and it, as this kind of loving document. I mean, I also watch 
I know we're not talking about Dress to Kill, but I did watch Dress to Kill beforehand for context. Yeah. And the way De Palma is filming mostly women in that movie. I mean, it's like, yeah. it, it is a it is a murder movie that is also like a breast washing tutorial. Yes. It is like, like <laughs> yes. women like rubbing <laughs> soap around their nipple. Oh, no. I'm like, no yeah. woman has washed her body in this way ever. No. But it was like... It's the, the, the body parts are so, I mean, people are body parts in that right. movie. In right? both of these movies, right? Like, well, yeah. but I thought first, in this like movie, the first shot, the first shot yeah, is well, like, yeah, know, that is true. Limbs. But the way it zooms over like that first shot in, mm-hmm. you know, what, what's the actual name of it? Cause it's called Ramrod in the movie. What's the oh, actual the name of it? Yeah. Mineshaft. Right. It, it starts by zooming past all the faces. Yeah. So I was like, just seeing this many different faces and like, you know, I was probably not as clued into like, I'm sure racially it was, it was like a whiter scene, at least in the movie, but so many different types, body types and facial hair. And mm-hmm. I don't know. And then it pans across the butts. Right. Yeah. So it's like, yes, it's isolating these types, but it did feel. It, it did feel kind of, if not loving, at least non-judgmental to me. Well, and what I love about that is, like, it's about the the collective body, too, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Like, even if we're looking at individual body parts in this kind of dismembered way, it's about, like, all of these bodies coming together. And I was watching Brian De Palma's film, too, and it was, like, it really i mean it was the the shower scene is the psycho shower scene where you're like you're feeling yourself in this voyeuristic position you're watching like parts of her body um yeah it's a very different kind of yeah uh visual experience um that interpolates you in different ways right like i do think there's like a voyeuristic fantasy especially now where we're like ooh like let's look in on this like forbidden uh-huh. world right but the way in which bodies are, I don't know, it, it reminded me, honestly, of that scene in one of the alien movies where you find Sigourney Weaver on, like, the mother alien and, like, there's all these tentacles and it's, like, super erotic and, like, de-individuating and libidinal. And I just really liked just looking at the bodies coming together and mixing up and it was just gorgeous. I don't know. <laughs> in the, in, the, in the, uh, the bar scenes. Yeah. Yeah. It also really like that first um I guess yeah, I guess it is the first murder scene because the professor is mur- is like pre-murdered mm-hmm. before the story starts. Yeah. yeah. But that first murder scene it 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 did give me an exp- an experience of oh wow, this must be an experience of what it must have been like the slightest sliver of what it must have been like the danger of Mm. being a gay man or even like when you hear about being a sex worker even like now Mm -hmm. still just the the danger and that that back and forth between the guy who becomes the victim and the killer Mm -hmm. about where the killer's asking him like you know it's like 5 a.m the the guy's like what are you doing? He's like, oh, I went to get cigarettes. You know, aren't you, aren't you scared? Have you ever been ripped off? And then that was the moment where I was like, Oh no, like yeah. it's so like so being vulnerable. ripped off is a possibility you have to think of when going out, you know? Mm-hmm. And that was, 
that was a really valuable experience for me. Yeah. And that, I mean, it's, I mean, so, you know, if you try and take the politics a little bit more, if you take them seriously at all of what the movie <laughs> would do, it, it is, it is kind of offensive or whatever, or it's like, mm-hmm. fucked because it's like, uh, I mean, well, I don't know. It is, a, it, it, it's, you're right. It, it has a very ambiguous ending, but that, that apparently was, I mean, so, um, that was apparent. So the, the activists who sort of disrupted the, um, uh, the filming claimed some kind of victory in like the way that it was, uh, the way that the ending was, was edited. Um, yeah. Mm. And that he apparently puts some, it like opens with a disclaimer, um, about like, you know, this is not a commentary on homosexuals in general or whatever. Mm. Uh, but, um, Yeah, the, the the fact that it's ambiguous, even though like the logic of the film really obviously makes it a story about Al Pacino becoming a homicidal leather man or whatever mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. by contact or whatever by like being too intoxicated and too deindividuated in this like really alluring space, um, mm-hmm. you can very easily see how that's a homophobic story to be telling right um, oh yeah and and like um uh yeah i mean the fact that he's you know he's like his sort of like his presence there or his allyship or whatever as you might want to construe what he's doing um you know where he's like i didn't i didn't like join the i didn't i didn't like sign up for this just to like let some guys get beat up because they're gay or whatever like theoretically he's like acting to protect innocent gay men in his mind yeah. as well as yeah. you know advancing his career and stuff um and there is you know there, there's room in the in the narrative for them to show the cops themselves being a source of danger things like that. sure Ex workers yeah. with his you know with his uh not the roommate but the like the sort of like um neighbor neighbor, Ted. neighbor yeah who's Ted. like yeah um oh, who's the innocent baby angel like the movie loves ted right and so that's part of i think you have to die right so you have you have he has to die because 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 the presence of this evil is malignant even on even unto people who like remove themselves right because because they do at some level to subscribe to this kind of homophobic idea of the whole culture as 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 infectious yeah as contagion totally Mm, um and so but but that but it's also it's a horror movie right also like it plays mm-hmm. on, you know it plays on what in everyday life like has to be like numerically innocuous and safe but still like contains a bit of openness to you know violence or danger or whatever so that it can then kind of like explore what happens like i don't know for some reason this was giving me because I, I watched this recently it was giving me some like rhymes with um um single white female which is like oh yeah very different mm-hmm. uh movie but like similarly like you know mm-hmm. Man- manhattan so it has the doppelganger manhattan, plot right manhattan doppelganger thing and yeah. it also hinges at kind of like at 
random decides that the like entry point for danger in someone's life is like ha- at least like cohabiting with strangers or being mm-hmm. strangers and like letting them in their home um and that's just like a you know that's like a fairly standard part of living in the city but in this sort of historical moment that like is the it's like this thrilling kind of like uh like hit of evil for a lot of a lot of people and so you can like make use of that in really interesting ways um yeah but um i really forgot absolutely well i wanted to like one of the things you're bringing up to me is so the title is very much playing with this double entendre right the cruising is like a gay activity right but it's also what cops do right and um as they patrol. And so one of the things I was kind of thinking about as I watched was what is the relationship between like this film's like homophobia or whatever it's trying to say about homosexuality and what it's trying to say about cops, right? Like um, it seems almost like these things are counterbalancing each other at different points, right? Like, his subject position as a cop, his subject position as a closeted man, um, mm-hmm. potentially a closeted killer, right? These are all kind of like, it's toggling between these things in terms of like how it's, how it's finding its own morality, <laughs> if it has, it has a morality. Um, yeah. So I was wondering, like, it's definitely ambivalent towards cops, but like, how would we better characterize this or? Yeah. Is there a correspondence between these things? Well, Ted, speaking of Ted, there's that first moment where they're walking to the diner Mm -hmm. and Pacino, which it's funny, you know, I don't think there's a, the reason we'll be calling him Al Pacino this whole time is because Steve is just not a name I buy on Al Pacino. (laughs) I'm like, I'm sorry. This character's name is (laughs) not Steve. Yeah, right. Yeah, or John Forbes, right. Right. Um, but, okay, so so Ted and Al Pacino are walking to the diner, and Pacino's like, why don't they just call the cops, you know, the, the classic? Yeah. And Ted says something to the effect of, are you fucking kidding? Like, yeah. they would have promoted him to yeah, exactly. sergeant or whatever. Yeah. Exactly. And so at, le- so at least there is some acknowledgement but but it's definitely a bad apples sort of perspective mm-hmm. i think right because uh the paul sorvino character yes. is like you know at the very end is noticing these t- this one guy from the 6th precinct who the you know trans character early on said was harassing them mm-hmm. and it's just like oh these the we we found the bad apples is yeah. is sort of the vibe that i get with regards to cops in this movie. I, I mean, that's interesting. I think, I mean, maybe, maybe that's how it like shakes out at the level of the whole movie, but Ted definitely, definitely like is saying, no, it's like the cops as such, or that's how I read what he he's talking about. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, and so yeah. like for them to be exactly. And so like for them to be sort of presenting that as like, that's not just like the sort of like, you know, the, the, the leather, the leather dudes, like the, the, the most like committed homosexuals, but like this, like, intellect, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. he also has a somewhat structural critique of 
police power as homophobic in essence um like that's a, that's kind of interesting and like it, you know it maybe you know maybe maybe because it's like embedded in this horror movie you can see why that's like slightly neutralizing the critique uh of the cops itself because the logic is still about like you know you're with pacino you're trying to like save the innocence from the the evil inside the community or whatever mm-hmm. um, but i so that's why i was like i was on my last rambling comment i couldn't really remember where i was going because I, I actually don't really know how i how i think it comes down but mm-hmm. i would say to your 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 question about like the the relation though i mean yeah that and doppelgangers. I mean, the the scene where, in like the second or third time, he goes to the mine shaft, Pacino, and he's like about to get like confronted and like unmasked. Right? The guy's like, "You have a you have a weapon on you. You have a knife. You have a badge or whatever." Mm-hmm. Oh, on precinct tonight. It's and because he's because he's oh, right, not, yeah he's not in cop drag. You know yeah. They're like you got to get you got to get out of here, man. You're not fucking dressed right. Right. You know, and you're not cop an enough. Scene. Not, not a good, yes. you're, you're, you're too yes. undercover. You're not a good enough. Yeah. You're not a good enough cop. Or you're not a yeah. good enough or whatever. So at some level, <laughs> yeah. it's like he, you can't, he couldn't do, he couldn't do both at once. So it does kind of, mm-hmm. it does kind of propose that there's some like polarity that like they're, yeah. related, they're related, but they can't actually be simultaneous or whatever. I mean, it's interesting. It's like, you know, when he's like being interviewed for the position, he's a total innocent. Um, but it also could be like, you know, if he really were gay or whatever, it could be have nothing to do with the murder investigation. It could be about we're firing you because you can't have a government job as a homosexual or whatever, right? Mm, you can, yeah. But you can be a straight cop who gets blowjobs from trans sex workers because that's actually completely uh, mm-hmm. within the bounds of cop sexuality or whatever, or straight sexuality. Totally. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, this movie is really, it's so interesting because it's like kind of at the historical endpoint of that. Because he's not, I don't think, I mean, I don't think he's closeted. I don't think, or that's like, that's one of the tensions that the mm-hmm, movie right. is like playing with, but like, I don't know. I, I think, I think like, I feel like he, t- like the, the story, the movie's telling is almost that he turns gay a little yeah, bit that it right. more than he's gay. closeted. Yeah. Mm, like yeah. that he's that there's that one scene where he's, which He's able to go home and visit Nancy Allen way more than I thought. Karen that was Allen. Nancy's that? the character. Karen Allen is the actress. Oh, thank you, thank you. Yes. Sorry. Uh, sorry when Karen Allen... No, thank you. Uh, so when he visits her, I-, I was just confused logistically because I was like, I thought he wasn't allowed to yeah. talk to anybody. So that was weird. But when he's getting the blowjob from her and there's that like just the camera stays on his face and he has those like sort of that conflicted long mm-hmm. face acting moment that to me felt like he's like kind of drifting into this world of, you know, remembering these images from the mine shaft and everything. And mm-hmm. it was like, Oh, he's 
almost like a werewolf movie, you know, where he's like becoming (laughs) gay. You know, yeah. Yeah. Well, their sex becomes more and more gay too, right? Like the first sex scene we have is like missionary, and it's but it's also like a very alienated missionary where she's kind of looking off, you know, very much as like a bottom, like just they aren't making eye contact. They're they're missing each other. And then the second sex scene we have is like her going down on him. They're having like their sex is becoming more and more characterized by this, you know, these experiences he's, he's having. Right. And it becomes, I was really interested in like their arc really being his arc, right? Like it begins with him saying, don't, um, don't let me lose you. And then, these then we have these two sexual encounters between them and then she tells him you know maybe we should cut loose for a while right and like that's actually the third act where he just he goes too far so to speak right like she is the kind of i don't know she she provides a lot of structure for the for the plot without really being a character whatsoever right like oh there's yeah. no interiority there but no i was kind of like we we're thinking about the this is a a season on the family and there are no representations of the family like whatsoever in this, in this film. But I was thinking about the absence of the family being, you know, that absence being a kind of character in the film. Right. And like you get remnants through her of what that might look like or what that kind of order might be. Right. But, um, but Max, do you think there is a representation of the family? You seem oh, yeah. to take issue Maybe. with that. I mean, I guess it depends on how complete you will uh, accept this as a family. But the killer fantasizes with the dad. With the dad. Yes, and, right. You are so right to bring that up. Yeah. And that's and that's his whole, whole motivation. You know, totally. It's like, he, in fact, that's what they. Say. That's like the kind of clumsy, like, oh, he has a psychological story, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's like, which is the psycho thing that. too. It's yeah. like, <laughs> it's like you're doing this because of this weird, messed up, uh, yeah, Oedipal thing, right? And, yeah, and yeah. having needing that origin story, yeah. to pathologize him with is very interesting because it seems so unnecessary any of that no it's right within within the terms of the story it's obviously it's obviously like an evil emanating from the community like that's yeah that's the that's the fascination that everybody has with this thing that's why the movie's even visiting this neighborhood or whatever and then so it's like actually no it's like this like bourgeois like heir who has some um problem finishing his like um, dissertation or whatever and like can't right. get over his can't get over his father's death but like that's like literally you know like if, if that if that two seconds of the of that one scene had been cut they like would have changed nothing about the movie right so totally, but i do yeah. think the fact that it adds in that it is there does change the movie mm. you know what you i think mean? so like, I think so. It, it There's feels so, so many on. interesting. I didn't think of it that way, but maybe I'm just too used to that those those sorts of tropes. But the the stuff in the letters, like specifically mm-hmm. the oh, yeah. red orb of jelly, like that shit's very that doesn't fit that psychological narrative unless you're just going to go, "Oh yeah, he's 
thinking of some weird shit, but I, I don't know. That was like very that that's a lasting image for me, and it's not even an image that's shown in the movie. It's just written in a letter. Yeah. It also was interesting to hear. Oh, interesting. I don't know. I don't, I don't <laughs> I think like of a vulva as. <laughs> <laughs> Just threw that in that's there. A, that's funny. That's another uh, single white female um, resonance. Also, yeah. <laughs> I have to rewatch that, but I'm really feeling these as like as um, intertexts. Um, I mean, I think I well, a, a factoid I have about yeah. the yeah. actor who plays the dad because okay. I I don't have a I have literally two notes going Tell into me, this give episode, them and this is one yeah. of them. Okay, is that. <laughs> So obviously there's a lot of uh, ADR in this movie. I, mm-hmm. I automated dialogue recording, but everyone just knows it's the the it's being in the studio re-recording the yeah. the the voices and the dialogue. The de- the actor who plays the dad is the one who recorded a lot of the dialogue of the various killers. So e- so know. even Stewart when he's in the hospital Mm-hmm. Some of his dialogue is from the dad. That guy. Yeah, that it, makes sense. Who was the real life acting teacher of the actor who played Stuart. And Stuart didn't like that actor didn't love the acting teacher. So what? it kind of like played well for that dynamic. But so so that dad and this dad figure being the literal voice of the killer in multiple contexts. And then also the killer being played by different actors. So in the first, in the first stabbing scene, the actor who plays the killer mm-hmm. is the one who gets stabbed in the park. And then, oh. um, the actor who walks into the peep show booth is the actor who got stabbed in that first killing scene. But then the killer in the peep show booth is the actor who played Stuart. So the point being that there's a lot of different, like, mm-hmm. uh, confusion and, and like, you know, de-individuation of mm-hmm. even like the actors playing. And you can tell kind of oh. when the hair is a little different, when yeah. the physique is a little different. And so it's adding to like, is there more than one killer? But it's mm-hmm. also adding to, I think, the, the thesis we've got going here that like, the community itself is the evil. That's so mm-hmm. interesting. Yeah, I mean, because the other side of that is like, there's a lot of the genotypes. And like, that's like the yeah. part of, I mean, like, that's, right. that's part of, I mean, that's the premise of why they like pick him, right? But it's like that first, that first victim could be his stunt, double, you know, stand in mm-hmm. on the mm-hmm. set or whatever. Like a number of the panning shots at the bar where he's like in a crowd, you're like, wait, hold on, which face am I? It's like a millisecond, right. like which one am I? Who am I looking for? You know? Right. Yeah. Um, and I wonder if there's a. I wonder if that has something to do with the like. That's what. Okay, maybe this is a stretch, but maybe that's like what. Um. Uh. The family serves to like ward off is like without mm. without a kind of like obvious sort of lineal container for whose arm is what or whose face is whose or whatever you do get this kind of like writhing 
body parts floating in the river, but also like caressing each other thing, which is like represented as like a kind of like open hit of evil in the city. Yeah. I also think, so this, this leads into my only other note. I hate to concentrate them right here, but there's, (laughs) there's a, because I was able to find on YouTube the like, two little featurettes they included on the DVD release of the movie. And in them, so in one of them, Bill Friedkin, the director, says that he sees the point of the protesters. How, like, this movie is not the ideal... If you think about this movie in the context of, like, the respectability politics of the, like, gay marriage movement, especially... Mm -hmm. That, like, yes, this movie is not an ideal representation of homosexuality, that it does pose, like, a threat to the traditional family structure. So he understands that, but he's, like, but it does exist. And so that's his argument for, like, representing it. And so I think both those things are interesting to point out. But as interesting is the next thing he says, which is, and I think it's an ideal uh, backdrop for a murder mystery. So it's like, this is huh. not an ideal, it, it's it's a threat to the traditional family, but it is real and worth pursuing. And yet Friedkin also kind of just sees it as a backdrop he for the most like depraved stuff. So he is like almost there to like getting like a three-dimensional view hmm. of this community. But still in the end, I, I think the, the fact that it is a living kind of beautiful thing is almost maybe in spite of yes, yes. so many straight dudes working on this movie. I think that's right. Yeah, I definitely think like whatever we're getting out of this was not intentional. <laughs> it yeah. is completely yeah. incidental, but that's actually like pretty politically interesting and beautiful that like we can we can take that from from this um film which I don't I think that's one of the things I wanted to talk about was the confusion at the heart of this movie, right? So, um and I'm going to talk about Pacino for a second. Um I mean, not just a second, but thinking about Pacino like as a method actor, right? Um so this is like at this point he has a reputation for his methodness, right? And the way in which he throws himself into these roles and um it seems like a really interesting precursor, which we can talk more about, or two, are Serpico and Dog Day Afternoon, right? Which come out a few years before this. Mm-hmm. Um, it's almost like they're mashed up together in some way, right? Like, um, but um, one where he's playing a homosexual bank robber and the other where he's playing this undercover cop. Um, but I was thinking a lot about the, like, the way in which being a method actor is being an undercover cop and how like that actually may be like what I'm taking from this movie most, most clearly, right. Is, um, this way in which, um, you know, method acting is, is, it is this kind of like morally complicated, dangerous path, right. Where you lose yourself, into into something right and like absorb the subjectivities of others and that's that's very much like how Pacino has described his own process and and this type of thing and and people are more and more interested in in this about him just a few years after this came out there was this um Rolling Stone profile of him 
um, called, oh, I'm going to, I forgot the name. I'm going to, I'm going to remember it later. Um, but he apparently like, he really wanted to know, am I gay? Do, am I a killer? And Friedkin would not confirm or deny. And he was actually like kind of torturing Pacino. Like they really hated each other by the end of the film. Um, because Friedkin wouldn't, wouldn't tell him, wouldn't, um, wouldn't give him any, any sense of certainty. And there are questions like, did Friedkin know? It seems like Friedkin was kind of winging it and he actually didn't fucking know what this character was, but that's okay with him and his method as a director. But, you know, as an actor, this was driving Pacino totally crazy. Um, so I read this interview, um, that came out that year with Lawrence Grobel, where he was asked, do you think that this film is anti-homosexual, right? Like he was being grilled like throughout the, the press junkets and things like this for this film. And he said, I feel, I don't know what's going on. I don't understand it. It's the first time in my life I've ever been in this kind of position. I'm baffled. It's a tough film. There's no getting away from it. And he says, I took this role because the character is fascinating. A man who is ambiguous, both morally and sexually. He's both an observer and a provocateur. It gave me the opportunity to paint a character impressionistically, a character who is something of a blur. I found that really interesting. Like this, this, maybe this is all retroactive, like his justification for what he felt to be a shitty performance. But I, you know, his, the kind of um, challenge for a method actor to perform as blur seemed really to capture something about this movie, <laughs> about the frustration, like at the heart of this movie. Um, well, I and, think it's kind of yeah. bullshit that he's like, it, it, it strikes me as very uh, de- disempowering of himself to that say, he decide. yeah, that he couldn't decide um, the whole yeah. thing of acting is like, make a fucking choice, dude. And the choice can be, I'm conflicted. I don't know, but but for it to be like the director didn't tell me, I'm like that feels very anti. Yeah, that's some fucking amateur shit. Is what it sounds like to me. You think so? I would I mean, it's say kind of interesting yeah. to look at that last scene and to be like, Pacino legit doesn't know. Yeah, exactly. as oh, totally. He's filming this, that's but for so him wild. to be like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> no, I totally, I know what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say, like, for for that character, that's that is the state that he's in, right? So, like, that is yeah. right. If, you know, if you were going, if you were Friedkin, and you're like, oh, I've got this method actor, and I need him to portray someone who doesn't know who he is anymore over the course of a series of strange events or whatever, like, I suppose you would withhold that information, and you would try and like, because 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 that's I guess like. That's somewhat the motor, right? Or maybe that's the source mm-hmm. of the horror, you want to say? It's yeah. Like, it's not, it's not neat. And in fact, it like could, you know, it's like, it's like, it's like this werewolf that you said, it's a werewolf kind of problem. It's like, oh no, what if, what if homosexuality wasn't like culturally bounded by people who know what the hanky code is and in fact is something that could be awoken within me by like mere mm-hmm. exposure <laughs> you know like one of the one of the one of the one of the killing scenes is like at a in a, a 
movie theater, right? And it's like, oh my God, I'm in a movie theater. I could also be like yeah. right. someone and walking through the door right now, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. Maybe I don't I don't want to give too much credit to Friedkin, but um for you know for 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 Pacino to be like in a state of like indecision or whatever, I think like that's it's somewhat appropriate. I don't know. Totally. Yeah. And then you contrast this with like a film that comes right after this from De Palma, Scarface. And it's like, um, there's, he's overflowing with a sense of like certainty about what it's like. It's actually really detrimental. I mean, I hate, I hate Scarface so much, but it's a lot for a lot of people that's kind of tipping point where like, you know, you're not really, this method thing is, I'm not buying it. This is actually just this uh, persona or mm. um, caricature or, I don't know, a parody. I mean, by the time we get him in the 90s, that's definitely what it is, right? Um, He's but, also, yeah, people have also sort of come around on him, too, in that in that way, right? You'd say, like... Yeah. Well, Wait, we come around in what way this. where his like more histrionic performances are being redeemed? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, don't you think? I mean, yeah. he's like, he's, yeah. he's a celebrated elder statesman, even when he's doing some kind of like goofy running it in. True. Right? Yes, absolutely. He yeah. is. He is. In the and... 90s and 2000s, I do remember people being like, okay, this guy. Oh, wow. I, yeah. I always thought he it was just like Pacino and De Niro. Those are the two ones. And maybe they do some goofy shit, but they're the ones. I don't know. That was well. That, but that but I, I, I was probably just not clued in. Well, no. They've, I mean, yeah. They've fallen out of fashion, though. Like in sure. the 2010s, you know, they just both became like uh, De Niro didn't seem to know what to do with himself, other than these like dumb dad comedies where he's like <laughs> the tough dad. You know, right. he's in like so many movies like that in that period, and then Pacino is also just kind. He he actually submits to being shtick in that um, Adam Sandler movie, right? He's just like, right. okay, fine, I am just a complete joke, right? Which um, one? Jack and Jill. Jack and Jill. Okay, yeah. See, I haven't Which is, seen it, but I've I haven't seen, seen, that seen it scene. either. I've seen the scene, right? Pacino, yeah, yeah, right. Where it's but like, did, what's yeah. it called? I don't remember. But yeah, he. But he's he's interesting. So we had like a debate on um, on. Twitter with, you know, some followers chimed in about like, what's, what's his, what's the best worst uh, performance that he's ever done. And some people were giving me shit about not, uh, I think you were Dave about not putting heat on. Yeah. Not putting heat. Yeah. There's this whole reading of heat that he's actually through the movie. He's giving us um, some clues that he's actually like doing tons of cocaine, but like off camera. So there's this scene where he says like, "Cause she's got a great ass." Yeah, right? it's like, incredible. That's like yeah. a classic. But there's a lot of people have gone back and looked. And he's like, he's clearly like just been snorting coke like yeah. right before that scene, but we never see it on camera. And so there's some some things that have been like, so he finally learned to make a justified choice. in some way like that, right? Um, yeah, that he did make a choice, but I think that this is like a really interesting challenge for him in this film to like have to just stay in that, yeah, stay in the uncertainty and, and not know. I mean, I wonder if we could talk about that last scene since we're kind of, Mm -hmm. um, circling around it a lot, right? Um, Totally. 
So the last scene, we know that Ted, the innocent baby angel neighbor who has like brought him into the scene in some ways, um, has been brutally murdered. We discover this. Paul Servino uh, goes to the scene and he kind of pieces it together that it could have been it could have been Pacino who did it right before he goes mm-hmm. out um, uh, after Stuart, right? Um, Although he never says that. He just kind no. of looks horrified and asks he looks horrified. The, the dirty cop to repeat the name. Yes. Steve with Bob John, Forbes. John Forbes. Forbes. Right, yeah. right, right. Yeah. So we're kind of, yeah, I think identifying quite a bit with Sorvino piecing it together. And then the next scene, Pacino has come back. I really like this. He's in the bathroom and he's shaving. And um, Karen Allen comes in and he, he says, you know, can I come back? You know, I'm, I'm out of the case. Can I come back home? And she seems happy. He says, I'm going to, okay, well, I wrote it down. He says, um, I want to tell you everything. Let me just get this off. Referring to, the shaving cream on his face, but like also the mask (laughs) that he's wearing. Right. And then she goes into the other room and we can't tell if they can see each other right through the mirror. Right. But she puts on his um, disguise, his leather jacket, his glasses, his leather cap. And as that's happening, she's disguising herself and he's unmasking himself. He looks into the mirror and then looks into the camera into you know through the mirror his right? reflection seems right. to look into the camera yeah 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 and that's the end right so what did you, i just wanted to recount this because i'm assuming like at least half the people who are listening have not have not seen this movie but what did you all think about what this implied what where did this leave you when you saw it yeah what do you think max oh god i don't know i mean <laughs> in terms of like um Yeah, I don't know. I, I wasn't quite sure how to how to take it. Um, I mean, the the sort of you're right. The the like the little the sort of like the parallelism within the um, the couple is interesting. It's fairly clear, I think. So it's like she's, you know, he he he's brought his brought his work home with him at some level. Mm-hmm. She's like she's like finding some opportunity for play slash exposure to this thing that he's you know this new kind of like sexual persona that he has or whatever or has access to you know Mm -hmm. shed it and she's picked it up um Mm -hmm. and he's like you know uh like slipping back into his kind of um you know his, his straight couple guy routine um but is it like like yeah is that is that like glance at the end like um an admission like or like a challenge to Mm -hmm. her or to us who want to like impose our decision on him that he that you know is refusing um yeah i think it's a challenge i i think think it's i i think it's so i'm torn between the me who wants to make meaning out of it 
And mm-hmm. the what seems like clear intention, partially from watching some of this extra material of Friedkin, of just like Edge Lord, look at the camera. What what about you? I'm just yeah. like you. Like I think it's like a little bit of an Edge Lordy challenge. But I'm mm-hmm. more interested in like what meaning we can make out of it, you know. And and I think to me it's it's you know it, he. I think he killed Ted. I am curious about how and why he did. I, I mean, there, I, I can, you know, oh, he's getting out of the case. The case is over. He needs to like purge this impulse from himself. But I'm especially interested in the possibility that he killed Ted after he went over and, and, had this row with Ted's roommate, like seeming because he just wanted to talk to Ted and it seemed like he still had like positive feelings toward Ted. So how is he like almost in some way, like trying to connect with or save Ted and then later that same night slaughtering the guy that, that fucks me up a little bit. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think it's a little bit of a wussy ending to be honest. Okay. Or I'll just say it. It's kind of a pussy ending. I don't know. <laughs> Fucking say it, dude. Fucking pussy. No, I'm just... It just felt really like... His... Friedkin's feet were to the fire. He's got all these protests. Yeah. He's probably well aware that this is going to critically bomb. And he just does not fucking know what to do with this end. <laughs> I mean... So was, what is I the pussy move there? That. What, what do you think he would have or just should like have or throwing it to back do. at the audience like you decide uh, right, yeah. like you decide what happened like i'm mm. not gonna i'm not gonna be decisive yeah yeah i think that and i think it's like a way of and i, I am being facetious obviously but i yeah. i think it is a way of like refusing accountability for the movie he's made <laughs> you know <laughs> like mm. and it's mm. like clearly exploitative nature and um even though we're doing all these kind of generous readings and finding these utopian kernels from it. Right. Like I think he was, his motives were exploitative and um, yeah, he saw it as a great, like that quote you're, you're bringing up about it being a back, a great backdrop for a movie. It's, it's super opportunistic. Right. Um, And it seems like he had some kind of crisis about that and didn't know what to do, you know? Um, So that's, that's kind of my reading. It's very like author driven. Huh. Um, but I guess, yeah, I am. I find the most fascinating questions about this film to be about its making and right. what it thought it was doing in this moment, what other people thought it was doing in that moment. And like how in so many ways the, the political discourse was set up before it was even released before anyone ever saw it, you know um, what it meant was, it was so predetermined, you know? So well, I like what you said about the parallel unmasking yes. and 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 not remasking, but ma- masking and unmasking. Because yes. I kind of saw um Nancy putting on the outfit as I'm I mean this character is just like a, a fucking nothing of a character yeah. who who j- he's like can I, can I come back now? And she's like yeah, absolutely. No, yeah, sure. no questions asked. Yeah. And then, and then, she, 
Yeah. Yeah. She puts on this this costume, and I'm like, she looks like a fucking mannequin from Marino's store. <laughs> oh yeah. But then, but so then, what would it mean? Like, if she is donning this mask, what's the meaning there? Is it that she like yearns for some sort of adventure or interest in her life the way he just had? Is she trying to step into his experience in some way? Mm-hmm. I don't know. What 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 do you make of that? I mean, because that's one of the only characteristics she has is that she's inquisitive, right? She wants mm-hmm. to know mm-hmm. what's going on with this case and he's shutting her out, right? He's shutting her out at the same time as saying, don't let me lose you or don't lose me. I forget what the words are, but, yeah. you know, like that's that's the dynamic he needs set in place between them, right? That's That's clearly going into crisis, but that moment where she puts on... Yeah, I just find that really interesting, and I really like how it's set up so that you really can't tell. Yeah, it could be that he's looking at her, you know, in the mirror, mm-hmm. that he's able mm-hmm. to see her yeah. based on where she's placed in the yeah in the, in the the room, right? But you just don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, he needs... So you don't have a sense, Max, if he killed Ted. I mean, it's definitely, I mean, that's the, the, you know, the, the preponderance of the evidence that Friedkin offers us is that he did, but I, yeah, I don't, yeah. Know, I don't know how I, I like, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's, it does seem like he, like, like you said, you know, changed, like changed it, it. I mean, certainly changed the cut in, uh, you know, in um, response to the MPAA stuff. Mm-hmm. Certainly he like, so yeah, I just found the disclaimer that um, he wrote, which is, um, yeah, this film is not intended as an indictment of the homosexual world. It is set in one small segment of that world, which is not meant to be representative of the whole. Uh, yeah. And hashtag uh, not all gays. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. I'm not. Yeah. I'm not judging. I'm just saying these people do this stuff, and you know, right. it's maybe it's, you're really the prejudiced one to. totally uh, yeah and it's like the lawyers told them to say that so Pacino was frequently saying like this is a fringe community and playing into anti-kink stuff in the gay community right Right. and so one of his lines frequently was um, I wrote this down that you know this is fringe the same way that the mafia is a fragment of Italian American Ah. life right it was just like good play very litigious. <laughs> I mean, it, it is interesting that the, the uh, that's that's the it's brought. I mean, the the mafia owns these bars also, right? That's the that's the mm-hmm. right literal subtext of, the, of mm-hmm. the of the thing. I mean, he says, "What's his name?" Uh, Paul Servino at the beginning uh, is like, "Oh, I can't. Uh, I know. I know. I know this one name you're bringing me, but like, I can't move against him." Mm-hmm. We're in there in like the yeah, Polly Joker, Johnny Joker, the Joker, exactly. Yeah, the Joker, yeah, the Joker. It's like that's that is the one of the sort of like heads of the Italian family, five families or whatever who, who own mm-hmm. all these bars, which was the um, was how they were filming in these places too. We like had a connection, mm. and, and like mm-hmm. the manager of the bar was, was apparently a fan of Friedkin's and so they like let him sort of like move around these spaces in ways that didn't really 
Okay. But yeah, like what's the, I think, yeah, I think he's um, much like the killer. He's shooting blanks. I think he's like, uh, <laughs> he's not really, he doesn't know what he does. He doesn't know what he thinks. He doesn't know what he's supposed to say about it. He just knows like, you're, you're right that it's, it's a bit opportunistic. He knows that there's this sort of like social, um, grouping that has, uh, you know, susceptibility to violence can be preyed upon by all kinds of people, which means that there's a lot of fascinating drama happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he's going to go in and kind of mind that a little bit. Um, yeah, I think mind. absolutely. Yeah, he's an interesting director. So like one of his 10 years before he directed um, Boys in the Band, which also has like its whole own yeah. story of being celebrated and then and you know, shot upon and then recuperated. And, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? um, so uh, by by the quote gay community um, as it was referred at the time. And then he also did the French connection, which is a pretty a cab movie. I would say, you know, it's like, it's, it's about how corrupt this police officer is. And it's like, but it's also about how the bad guys are, are maybe more corrupt. Right. But, but it's a very like, morally complicated, um, politically complicated movie. And then he did the exorcist and I'm just going to admit, I've never seen the exorcist. I'm really afraid, but if either of you have seen it, I'd be interested in like connections that, that you see. Cause that was the last hit he made before this one. Right. So it's kind of an interesting transition. There was some things between weirdly like a comedy with Peter Falk, which now I really want to go see, but like, I don't I mean, know. I've seen How do you go Exorcist. from Exorcist to cruising, you know? <laughs> well, okay, so here is actually a literal answer to that. Okay, yeah. Um the Exorcist they they used a real the similar to the way they used like real leather bar attendees in this movie, they used the mm-hmm. real radiologist in some uh, scene. It's been a long time since I've seen The Exorcist. I only know this mm. because of the cruising watching that I did. But mm. that they they there was some radiology scene where they're looking at the little girl's brain in The Exorcist. Okay. And the real radiologists was in the movie, and the real radiologist's assistant was also in the movie. Became a killer, killed whoa somebody. And so Friedkin visited this guy in Rikers. Oh, yeah. And this inspired him. Yeah. And had a conversation. And this, like, partially inspired him for cruising. To do this movie. Yeah. So I think it's less of a thematic thing. Wow. Yeah. And this movie was getting bounced around. Believe it or not, there was a time where Spielberg was um, being considered. Unreal. (laughs) What kind of a movie would this be? There's a twinkle in the eye of of one of these beautiful <laughs> little leather bar boys. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It, that's also <laughs> I, the fact that this wasn't. I mean, the the novel came out in 1970, and there was pretty quickly interest in making it into a movie, um, but it got passed around, and like I said, 
different actors were like really worried about it tarnishing their career. I mean, this was actually like a really, really courageous move for mm-hmm. Pacino to make, uh, do this movie. And he was kind of in a, in a rut in his own, um, filmography. Like he'd done a couple of weird, like this movie Injustice for All. And then this, I actually love this movie, Author, Author, but he was kind of in a rut. And then he turned to this thinking maybe it would revive like, his career in some ways because it's so risky mm. and it really backfired. Um, but it's, it's, uh, it's interesting to think about like what happened to Friedkin's career and, you know, he basically didn't make anything big after this. Right. Um, well, but he made influential. I mean, to live and die in LA is pretty like influential. Yeah. But I don't know. I was recently like the movie Jade that he did. So his wife is a producer and there was a certain point. His fourth wife was a producer and at a certain point, like it was more or less understood that Sherry Lansing was getting him work. Um, Like he was, he was thought to be a liability. And this was one of the, this was the first thing that really tarnished his, his Hollywood credentials. Um, so I don't know. And it's he made those recent um, uh what's it called? Uh Tracy Letts adaptations, Bug and Killer Joe in um 2006 and 2011. The like Matthew right. McConaughey remaking re- you know the f- the screen version the of Tracy Letts plays. Yeah, yeah. Yes. So I wouldn't yeah. consider that nothing. No, no, no. He's just he's a really he's had a lot of different phases in his career and mm-hmm. um, seems like very confused about what he's even doing with this film. Right. Um, so I don't really know what I'm making of this, but I was kind of interested about the, um, the exorcist connections. I need to talk about, I want to talk for a moment about um, the Franco thing. Oh, yeah, please. And pivot into it. Um, yeah, do it. Just cause I watched it. <laughs> I want it to be worth Yeah, you need to redeem your watch of it. Yeah, tell us about it. No, but I was just, I was really interested in, okay, so it opens with this language that I found really gross. I'm going to read it to you. The production of Cruising was plagued with protests from the gay community claiming that the film was homophobic. Director William Friedkin also received death threats during the making of the film. So I found the word plagued really gross. <laughs> and, and also, it's, I was surprised how unabashedly it was um, pro-Friedkin thinking about this this wow. director's like artistic freedom that was taken away from him and it really is like it is a it is a film about artistic freedom and um there are some pretty interesting i don't know how much you remember of the movie max not much <laughs> um, not much um there's some pretty interesting scenes where okay so basically the central tension is this actor he's hired to val who to play to play Pacino playing the the character, right, um, is throughout the thing kind of, and I, who's to say, like, how smart this movie is, like, whether this is actually intentionally meta or, like, how intentionally meta it is, but he's 
through the film grappling with what his character is um, supposed to be doing. You know, am I gay? Am I, why am I here? What am I looking for? He's kind of constantly asking Franco these questions and Franco is just kind of like looking at his cell phone and like kind of looking at him and like very dismissive whenever mm. these questions come up. And then there's this finally this like confrontational moment where he's like, you know, I grew up and I didn't, I didn't see sex like this. Like I've only seen sex like a very particular way in the movies. And like, and I, I want to know about this and I want to see this and I want to see different kinds of sex in movies and like, um, there's only very specific kinds of um, relationships that I've ever, ever, ever seen, and things like this. So it it really does seem to be for Franco's him, character says that. No, Franco, Franco playing himself. Okay, sure. He's not in the only role he really plays in it as, is as this um, quasi director figure. Mm-hmm. Right, he's not acting in the. Yeah. reimagined scenes he's right. cast this guy to do that because i don't know if you and know actually, but he's multi-talented he really can do uh, everything he's so talented mm. no a lot of these a lot of these like really adorable gay boys who are being interviewed in the they're like in the beginning are like why do you want to do this movie and a couple of them say like well i'd like to make out with franco like <laughs> <laughs> they're like seem to be really disappointed to find out like he's not actually going to be a character in these oh scenes. <laughs> but um it's very it's a very weird movie, but it's it's a lot about like his mission to bring back and reimagine these scenes and to understand like William Friedkin as being like somehow perpetrated, right? And um that that like his real vision of this film was robbed from him by censorship and that that's like the root of what's troubled about this film. Wow. And so it's like, it's super recuperative. And then it's also extremely interesting to think about. So this was filmed in 2012 and it came out in 2013. And this was the same year that James Franco started getting quote unquote me too um, of all of that. Like a, a bunch of screenshots came out in 2013 um, from some teenagers who he was, uh, or I think it was just one teenager who he was, um, you know, inappropriately engaging with on like Instagram DMS. And it was while he was quote unquote researching, let's get to the method man of it all, like researching this role that he played as a, uh, a lecherous soccer coach in Palo Alto. I don't know if you've seen that movie, Max, but I haven't seen that one. No. You should probably see it as a Palo Alto um, expert. Expert. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> but so this all coincided with this moment of, um, yeah, what we would know to be like Me Too controversies surrounding him. And then I was also really fascinated. Like, I don't know if you saw the movie, The Disaster Artist, that he made about the filming of The Room. But like one of the really pivotal points in that film is about like Tommy Wiseau's like um, more or less harassment of the actress um, who's in the room to like do things that she didn't consent to really fully in the sex scenes um, and and pressure her in these ways that like, it's a, it's actually a really fascinating film because of like what it, 
does and does not know it's commenting on because it came out in 2017. Um, so I just found all of these things really interesting in terms of like to contrast with these things that we're talking about at the beginning, like contemporary queer readings that are really like taking from this film, like things that it's offering us in spite of itself. Right. And then there's like James Franco mission to, to, um, preserve, um, Friedkin's like artistic vision and, um, yeah, the authenticity of like the original, what would have been an X rated, um, film. So I just wanted to bring these things up. It's, um, pretty, pretty weird film. So it's called interior leather bar for anyone who's interested. I actually would recommend it. And there's a bunch of these scenes where like, you're watching Franco watching these hired actors, many of whom are amateurs act out things and you're not seeing what they're doing. You're watching him and you're watching the actor Val and it's, it's all about the kind of voyeurism and um, specifically the voyeurism of um, straight actors and straight directors who are wanting access to um, this kind of sexuality. So what strikes me as a very straight project to make it a free speech issue. Yeah. Right. To be like, you know, to treat it only, I don't want to say only aesthetically because there's, there's other things than like straightness wrapped up in the aesthetics, but, but to treat it so much about rights and, and like a pre cancel culture sort of like what, you mm-hmm. know, why was he, not allowed to have his vision and, and a very like limited auteur theory of art um, mm-hmm. to, to make that about it as opposed to like the number of like incredibly interesting things happening in this movie. It's just like, yeah, to, it, it feels very much like a straight person to like take the multifaceted, any any sort of even very flawed multifaceted representation of queer life and like make it less interesting. Hmm. It was um yeah, I mean it was a it was a collaboration with a a director though, I think, right? Yeah, um, yeah. Um Travis. What's his name? So um, Travis. Who like I remember I mean, so I'm sorry, I'm piecing together a very hastily written um, review from 14 years ago or something that I sure sure <laughs> but I remember being like oh there is a kind of I mean because like it was unclear like what how much sort of creative uh, control this collaborator guy mm. had Travis Travis Matthews yeah I'll just interject um, yeah. there what there was like another sort of like layer of a weird doubling or stand-in thing because he looks a little bit like Franco, but mm-hmm. definitely it, like his gay brother or something like that. Um, and like, so he's clearly getting something. I mean, he's, he's his sort of investment or interest in this project would be voiced by the, like the extras who are like, maybe I'll get to like, it's James Franco in this scene or whatever. Um, and so there's in, in a similar way, like there's in, whatever it's like, internally p- p- communities 
for one thing, and people themselves are always a little bit incoherently committed to things that are um, of value to them or like have a sort of detrimental way of circulating or whatever. Um, so like, yeah, was this, was this gay co-director being like deployed in a cynical way by Franco at a moment when his like sexual status was about to come under certain kind of scrutiny or did he, yeah, did he have a purely kind of, um, like, yeah, abstract concept of what was going on, Franco, mm -hmm. and this guy was actually like, this is a really interesting opportunity for me to stage what, like, you know, if it was, if it was, I mean, whatever, imagine it's like an all gay people production of this reconstruction of the lost footage. Like, I don't know if it's a much better movie necessarily, even in that case, um, but like this guy is taking you can imagine he has some capacity to take advantage of Franco's own instrumental interest and like are doing, they're making some kind of collaboration just makes me think like, you know, what that, that thing that you said, the guy, the actor was saying about like not seeing these kinds of sex on mm -hmm. screen is sort of what we were saying. We appreciate about this movie at the beginning. It's like, it is a mode of preservation Mm -hmm. better for worse so you know it like it gets it gets deployed in these like freaky ways so another thing that happens after the protests in the 80s um is that um someone there's like a mass shooting outside of the bar that they uh, right that, right um and this it's like is it from the movie yeah how do you know but like it's definitely the movie was filmed there there are a bunch of there's a lot of attention brought to it it was this sort of uh, person who would have been within earshot of the like attention, um, mm -hmm. brought to this stuff. So, um, and like it also, that's sort of that's also what's you know, it gives a little bit of credence to the MPA desire for censorship because it's like, well, yeah, we do, right. we do kind of like, um, live off of these scraps that made it through you know and like we find we find a lot of real sustenance in what is kind of like yeah uneradicably a basically homophobic movie but it's still contain within that it contains really important like images and scenes and you know like um yeah evidence i guess that like the this this type of world existed at a certain point and it doesn't now. Yeah. No, it's so layered. Or yeah, it's like we have to kind of dismember it in some weird, weird uh, ways. Back, like as a, as viewers, I mean, I think we really do have to extract all of these different parts and accept it as you know, in accept its incoherence. Um, mm. But it's really. I think it's I think it's pretty fascinating how there was this moment, which again I want to contrast with like whatever queer counter readings, you know, were were citing otherwise. But like to um, go back and uphold this as this, yeah, this artistic vision that was that was censored um, and um, that's like doing both like 
something condemnational towards the MPAA and also very clearly towards the the gay protesters at the time, right? Who quote again plagued the production of of the filming. I mean, I can't, I can't. Do you think that they use a term like that, like plagued the production? I think the most um, generous unintentionally. Reading, I think it's <laughs> like, possible. I mean, that's the that's the straight guy thing is to genuinely yeah. not even think. Of, I mean, yeah. because that is a super common like. The production was plagued by blah, blah, blah. But I I think it's possible it's unintentional, but not a very good look. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, it's just horrific. But yeah, I I really appreciate what you're saying, Max, about, um, you know, Franco's own kind of doubling with with Travis Matthews. And that's also like Franco's authoritarianism is a really interesting current in the film because Val does not. He doesn't even really want to be involved in this project. He keeps saying to Franco, like, I trust you and I'm doing this for you because I trust you. Um, But it's also kind of set up like in the beginning, he's talking to his wife on the phone or actually he's listening to a voicemail from her. And she says, just be home by eight so that we can go out to dinner reservations. And so the whole day of filming, he's telling himself, I'll have to be home at eight. And the last scene is he's just in his car at 9.36 p.m., like, staring at the crew, um, you know, taking down the set and things like that. He's clearly not gone to – and we don't really know where he drives off to. He goes off and, like, whatever. It's heavy-handed, but it's, like, cruising in the end. <laughs> um, so it's trying to kind of – think about i think like what franco really does seem to get from it is this like method actor these method actor questions right about like losing yourself into this desubjectificating like pool of desire and like ambiguity and i don't know there's something like very paranoid about it um that i i just wanted to bring up um well, famously that's that is the homosexual pathology. Um, yes. This paranoia. You know, all these men, all these beautiful right. men keep persecuting me by trying to um, make me have sex with them. Right. Classic formation. And, uh, to make me look in the mirror, right? Exactly, yeah. <laughs> right? Well, that was kind of yeah. my last big thing is, can can you turn gay? Is that is that... Is that real? Well, yeah, that was Did I, am 80s I... and 90s trope, though, right? It's no, like, yeah, that totally. You turn gay. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. This yeah. will turn you like I don't want. I don't want that in the locker room with me. I don't want to see a bunch of you know yeah. gay. We're naked in there, you know. Like, yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, yeah. The, I mean um, the idea is like, yeah. well, yeah. No, that, you know, there, there's like a. It's like, it's not like yeah I don't know I mean it was it it's it is a really interesting historical moment to be making this movie because it is kind of at a hinge of like different sexual concepts that people that people in general were and anxieties. And anxieties but like mm-hmm. yeah a lot of a lot of the a lot of the um, sort of uh, understanding of of like 
what being straight meant or whatever, or what being gay meant conversely, relatedly, was that like you were responsibly suppressing childish and, um, you know, socially uh, pernicious desires that many people have, but it's your job as a, you know, normal citizen person to not give into that. Um, mm-hmm. So like what's bad about these like bars is that they're like not dens of homosexuality per se, but dens of like irresponsibility in the face mm-hmm. of this mm-hmm. or whatever. Um, and that like they, they give license to people to stop doing the repression that everybody has to do as opposed to now where it's like, well, we've got this gene maybe or something that like simply makes one person one way or the other. And so it's, uh, it's morally incoherent to ask people to, um, uh, to be in the closet, for example, or to, to go through conversion therapy, not incoherent, it's warrant. Um, but like everybody is one way or the other. And let's just like never think about the fact that, um, a lot of this repression has to happen for a lot of people. Uh, right. You know, people have all kinds of confusing relationships to what's in front of them or what they wish they were near or whatever. Uh, mm-hmm. And like, yeah, you could. Yeah. I don't know. I was just talking to my friend about the movie, um, in and out from the nineties. I don't know if you all remember that. It's really stupid. Mm-hmm. It's starring Kevin Klein. It's like a Frank Oz movie and nobody, nobody is gay who's involved in this movie. Um, but it does have a great Joan Cusack, um, performance as, um, her, she is, uh, Kevin Klein's fiance and he is outed, but like the whole idea is that he's he's outed by like his um his former student played by Matt Dillon plays a gay character. It's kind of making fun of Philadelphia, the Tom Hanks thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in his Oscar speech, he thanks the Kevin Klein character and he says, "Thank you." And and he's gay. And Kevin Klein's like, "I'm gay." Like he doesn't know that he's gay. And so the movie is basically about how everyone kind of knew that he was gay, but he didn't know that he was gay. And it's because of all these signs, like that he loves musicals and that he teaches drama. And, um, and none of it's about sexuality. It's just these, like these, that he's coded gay and that he doesn't know it about himself. And it struck me as like, that's a very like nineties iteration of this, you know, totally desexualized, but like that you would, you would be in the closet, but that everyone around, else around you is aware of your your closetedness right um and that, that becomes a kind of paranoia later on it's, right. it is interesting to kind of think about these things and how this film is and isn't fitting into these tropes because i don't think it neatly fits into the closet case and i don't f- feel like it neatly f- fits into the repressed killer narratives that it oh. kind of teases us at you know it it's messy no matter what right um so maybe we can actually appreciate the way it doesn't perfectly play into those paranoid obviously homophobic tropes at the same time and that that's like in some ways a a wonderful like happy incident of its own political confusion <laughs> you know is um 
the kind of nuances that it makes possible, but I don't well, know. That Maybe feels that's like way a too generous. Perfect transition genre to our reveal genre moment? reveal. Yeah. Uh, right? I agree. Okay. Max, do you want to go first? Or do you want to go last? Um, <laughs> do you know we, what your genre is? Do we only get one shot? Oh, whoa. Oh, I love it. This You're is the a, first person who's ever what asked is that, that. What does that mean? <laughs> do we only get one shot? I, mean, I want to say no. I have, but... like a, I have like a very basic one, but I don't think it's particularly fun or clever. <laughs> well, you can tell two. I actually, to be honest, have two. Yeah. That I'm, I was like, maybe by the end of the conversation, I'll have decided. Oh, but... okay. Okay. Then, Dave, did you just Yeah, like... I have like, I got four or five different ones. <laughs> uh... No, did you do what you usually do, Dave, where you didn't yeah. come up with one and you just came up with it during the recording? Yeah, well, I'll, yeah, I so I'll go first. I don't understand how you do that. That's maddening to me. Okay, Well, yeah, I spent, first. I've spent 20 years honing a live performance instinct. So this is the closest oh. I have to that so please so, so wanting it to, well, to, to be able to practice the one of the few things i'm actually good at but i i was pretty proud of myself especially i think max's reaction helped with this i did not oh. think of this as a werewolf movie until oh. saying it hmm. and I so was beginning to wonder so i <laughs> i it's it, it's not it's not my most elegant genre name but i i'm calling it a leather scene werewolf panic movie wow leather scene werewolf panic yeah i the the panic is not that's why he's shaving because he was a werewolf (laughs) right (laughs) i almost called it a a leather scene i want to i want the word panic in there because that feels like related to the 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 family stuff I almost yeah. called it a werewolf umentary. Um, werewolf umentary. But, but I but just because the leather scene thing was really yeah. valuable to me because I do think there is a just a pure documentarian aspect mm-hmm. of this that you were kind of referring to, Max, with the like kind of bringing the the old zines to life. That was that that I thought was one of the most exciting parts of it was just like oh just slices of a very specific part of uh life for a very you know minority community was really cool so uh, you know but now i want to hear the 15 other genres you two have come up with I'm happy to go next if you don't want to, Max, but I'm also really curious. Let's hear Max's <laughs> basic one, and then yeah, you go, Madeline, the and then if Max wants another <laughs> yeah, crack I, I, Yeah, so my, base, my, my basic one is just um, leather horror, which is like, that's... that's Love it. That's good. Very, that's great. Very generic. So there you go. It's, it's a I genre like reveal, so it should be generic. <laughs> my basic one is... Um, or maybe it's not basic. It's just too simple. It's just blur. Cause I was really, I, I loved Pacino's word for his character. And I thought, you know, this is a kind of hermeneutic code for me in terms of your character, but also the film's politics. Um, but 
Then I was more, I'm more smitten with this one, which is a method actor, authoritarian director, S&M. Oh. Okay. Okay. Because <laughs> I just really like the idea of Friedkin, like, getting off on torturing Pacino. And so just... S&M as cre- creative process as yes. S&M. Yeah. Yeah. Just like forcing Pacino into this submissive. Yeah, yeah. Role as the method, not D S, but D A for actor and E for mm-hmm. yes, yes. I like it. Director, actor, yeah, yeah. Dasm. Dasm. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> we got there. Dasm. Dasm horror. Right. Yeah. Exactly. I, I I mixed up the order there. Um. Yeah. Do you have what? Do you have a more I did, I don't think I, I don't think I don't think one? it's like congealed into anything. Um, yeah, pithy. Uh, um, but I, th- I there was something about there's something about the like, you know the um, the, the fiscal crisis city mm-hmm. background and like the sort of what I was trying to gesture towards is like the two historical sexual orders going into crisis. Also, like this is a bit of a sort of like hinge point at like. I mean, they, yeah, all right, I'm going to go into too much detail, but, you know, they talk, but the, where they're doing that, where they're cruising at the beginning, and they're like, look at this filthy city, they used to be able to place all yeah. these corners or whatever. It's like, this is the end of the cycle of the sort of social democratic city cycle. And it's like bottoming out. And it's also the end of the sort of sexual war that is uh, internal to that um, cycle. So I don't have a good way of putting it together, but I wanted to make some kind of like fiscal sexual crisis panic yeah. phrase and it just didn't arrive but fiscal sexual like f- apocalyptic drama i feel like fiscal and fisting oh wow no, there's something there <laughs> maybe we should ask listeners to write it yeah. <laughs> but i love that yeah and that's definitely an element there's so much here and we could have touched more on that but thank you for bringing that up and, yeah um this was great cool. I think. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, this was a lot of fun. This was super fun. Um, (laughs) If other folks have, you know, if you have that fiscal fisting pun Mm -hmm. for us, email us at genrerevealparty at gmail.com. We need those leather daddy jokes. Yeah, tweet us at (laughs) genrerevealpod or Instagram. Uh, Yeah, I think think that's all we've got. We've got our last episode next week. Uh, We're doing a. We're doing a stand-up special, which I'm very excited about. Yeah, so it'll be cool. Live, and folks should check out Pinko Magazine. Um, you want to plug upcoming publication dates on that? Max? Uh, well, uh, great question. We ha- so we've just we've just um, uh, we've just finished work on this book that um, is called After Accountability, which is a sort of oral history style investigation of the um, origins of the concept, um, sort of the political lineage of this, of this term. Um, but I've, uh, it's on a boat in the Atlantic right now. It was printed somewhere overseas and we don't really know exactly when it's going to get in. So look for that in like September, let's say. Um, and then we have a third issue that's coming out later in the fall. You can- I love that. It's on a boat. Thank you for that detail. <laughs> I, mean, I was, I was like, ask, I was asking the, I was asking, it's not just in process. I know. Well, 
<laughs> I, yeah, I was texting with the, the the woman who published it for us, and I was like, "Do you have any idea when like when we should expect it?" She's like, "Here's the tracking number for the shipping container that." It's wow. On. I'm just like in the ocean, but it's on the surface of the ocean, <laughs> yeah, not at yes, the exactly. bottom of the ocean. Good, yeah, good point. It could be much worse. Ocean Gate or whatever could be handling it. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's the show. Thanks for listening. We'll we'll talk to you next week. <laughs> <laughs>